Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. The saying goes, the only thing we have to fear is change itself. There's there's something like that. It doesn't really matter. What we know is that evolution changes everything. Or maybe more accurately today, everything is changing evolution. With every so-called discovery in so-called science, so-called evolution changes, as it were. But it doesn't change going forward. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. It changes going backwards. Because right now, nothing is evolving. We've reached the end of the road until science decides that they need future evolution to happen for use in some study for some reason. But until that time comes around, again, we just keep changing evolution backwards. Now, those doing the sketchy science say that's how science works. You make something up, then you find something new, make up a story about that, then remake up the original story to fit the new made-up story into the new old made-up story. They don't say it exactly like that. It sure would be nice if there was some coherent, logical, written origins account. Eh, oh well. Until that time comes, we'll just keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Have I heard that before? Ah, doesn't matter. On today's episode, first we're going to have to mark up the textbooks. Again. Then a brand new, never-before-heard-of, shocking wrinkle in history that'll blow your mind. And of course, a goal update after the bumper. So, grab a nice new chisel tip sharpie, one of those big ones that smells so good, and keep in mind that if we're going to ride this one out, we're going to need a bigger boat. Much bigger boat. Now, never let it be said that I'm anti-evolution, that I'm a change denier. That said, why mess with a good thing? Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And God called the expanse heaven. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. So God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and also the stars. Then God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. 
Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given to you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed, and it shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that creeps on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, clearly I've chopped out parts of this historical narrative for the sake of time, but you should have recognized this as Genesis 1, you know, of the Bible. In this case, I'm using the Legacy Standard Bible, the LSB. Now, but you may ask, why am I reading a summation of Genesis 1? Well, I want you to notice a few things. First, the language is very definite. Although I cut these out, nearly every day God said that what he had done was good. Not that it should be good or it's pretty good. It was good. Every day God said, and it was so. There was no asking, no hoping. It was definitive. Second, nowhere in this entire narrative do we read about God or the author, Moses, thinking or speculating or assuming what happened. There's no question as to what happened, when it happened, and how it happened. Moses was not trying to piece together clues, working at crafting a plausible scenario for why he existed, what might have happened many years ago. There was no question as to what took place as Moses heard this, somehow, firsthand from God. Third, Animals, man, and woman were all created on day six. Now, I was curious recently when I read this passage about how God didn't just create the animals. He created the cattle, creeping things, and beasts. When looking at the Hebrew, cattle is generally largish quadruped animals. Creeping things denotes more like lizards and creatures that are low to the ground, generally fast. Beasts is kind of the catch-all. Everything else that isn't a bird, isn't a fish, isn't a cattle, isn't a creeper, but has the breath of life, all the rest were created on day six. Well, all that is except man, because as we read further, and then man was created from dust, we find out in chapter two, which is where we find out that Eve was created after Adam from a rib, a dust rib, I guess. Fourth, man was given some instructions. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth. Fifth, man was given dominion over the earth, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing on the earth. Sixth, man was given food, every plant yielding seed, every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and this was given to both man and animal, at least at the start. Seventh, and finally, this account has never been updated and changed. Now, sure, those claiming to be evolutionists and Christians, which I will agree for now can be a thing, although the more I think about it, I'm not sure how, but those old earth Christians, so-called, have tried to wedge millions and billions of years into the definitive, precise, 
abundantly clear historical account written by Moses, and yet Genesis has never been rewritten, edited, updated, revised, or anything else based on their views. Now, this is the difference, at a very base level, between a real belief in the God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God, including the creation account, and a belief in man's self-derived evolutionary science. The fantasy story of evolution, and it is a fantasy, is constantly updated, revised, and changed. Now, some would argue that that's because that's how science works, that you find new data, new evidence, evaluate, and adjust your hypothesis. And although, yes, that's how science is supposed to work, the reality is, if true, honest science was ever applied to the hypothesis of evolution, at any stage of the process, from Big Bang to Homo sapiens sapien, the theory would have been thrown out millions of years ago. Now, that's not how evolution is treated. When it comes to the theory of evolution, the science is settled. In other words, evolution is a fact. The details are subject to change. Oh, and change they do. What you'll find is that when it comes to adjusting what's absolutely known about evolution, the changes always move more toward absurdity. For instance, the Big Bang Theory is that all the matter in the universe compacted together and it spun faster and faster, got hotter and hotter, and exploded, and over a period of time, created everything. The size of the compacted ball of matter has changed over time, from the size of our universe about a century ago, to the size of our sun, to the size of our moon, and now a volume so small that everything in the entire universe, all matter, compacted so tightly, it was literally nothing. I mean, this is in the textbooks, quote, nothing means nothing. That's not scientific, that's insanity. But we see the same with the age of the universe. For most of our existence, the belief was that it was very young, less than 10,000 years old, based on the account in the Bible. Then it was expanded by science to millions of years. Over time, the age of the universe has increased and increased to now the accepted 14.7 billion years. That's how long ago the Big Bang happened. Except no, in July of 2023, a new discovery made possible by the James Webb Telescope is leading scientists, and yes, I'm making the air quotes as I say that, to believe that the universe is actually 26.7 billion years old. I do find it funny that a star that has puzzled scientists as appearing to be older than the 14.7 billion year theory is named Methuselah. You know, the oldest man in the Bible. Anyway, what we're seeing here are, are two things. First, science must move toward absurdity. A volume so small it becomes nothing, and years so large we have no way to comprehend them. It makes it impossible for you and I to argue because actual comprehension of these values is literally impossible. What? You're telling me that if you had 4 billion years, life through millions of very small changes compounded over time couldn't happen? 4 billion years? That's a lot of years, Dan. This is why we can't, or at least we aren't supposed to ask, why we don't see evolution in action today. Oh, oh, it's very slow, Dan. No way for us to see it. And the answer to the question of why we don't see various stages of evolution today is answered by an equally absurd, well, it must have only happened one time. And I'd have to say, really? 
Only one time in four billion years? That's a lot of years. Ah, but again, I'm the unscientific, uncultured mouth breather in each of these scenarios. The second thing we see is that they must make these changes. The theory of evolution, as settled as it is, is literally as solid as liquid water. As far as I know, the only two entities that can walk on liquid water because of how rigidly solid it is, is Jesus and evolutionary science. They need to make changes constantly in the theory because nothing fits. Every time they find a new discovery, a new species, a well-defined fossil something, in the wrong well-defined layer of the earth, in the wrong part of the well-defined world, they need to reshuffle the cards they use to build their house of evolution in order to attempt to create yet another scientifically sound, ironclad, coherent theory. Now that their own new discovery goes against what was absolutely positively known previously. And that excessively long introduction brings us to our relatively short article for this segment, found on phys.org, headline, New Ancient Ape from Turkey Challenges the Story of Human Origins. <laughs> what you'll find with nearly every article about every discovery like this is that they'll always write a headline with something about how it challenges the story, or it rewrites the story, or scientists rethink what's always been known, or something along those lines. So let's take the next few minutes and see what passes for science these days, shall we? I feel as if this may be enlightening, yet again. Apparently, a new fossil ape was discovered in a region of Turkey known to be 8.7 million years old, which is further challenging the long-held belief that man evolved from monkeys, more or less, in Africa. Uh, nope, the theory that's gaining momentum, and has been for a while now actually, is that humans evolved from apes in Europe, I guess, and then migrated to Africa sometime between 7 and 9 million years ago, or that the origins of the apes were in Europe, and then those migrated to Africa, and then humans evolved from there sometime in that time range. Nobody really knows. They're all theories. But let's pause for a tick, and let's kind of break down their theory thus far. How do they know that this region is 8.7 million years old? Well, the article doesn't go into this as it's not the point, but it's the same everywhere. There are designated layers that span the entire globe. Now, most regions have most layers, but very few regions, if any, have all of the layers. These can be determined by the type of rock or whatever the layer is made from. And know that I'm grossly oversimplifying this because it's not worth going deep on these points. So the layers are fairly easily determined. But as for the age, it gets a bit trickier. See, the age of the layer is determined by the fossils that are found in it. So evolutionists have determined the order of evolution. So per their theory, they know when each type of creature existed, give or take. So now, to date the fossil, they look at what layer it was found in. But that layer was dated originally by the fossils found in it based on an unprovable theory with no real evidence. And no, the various dating methods are reliant on the assumptions of age range already determined by the theory, by the layer, by the fossils. So it's nothing but an error-laden circle of self-confirmation. That said, apparently this ape fossil shouldn't be in this layer in this region. If the original theory of evolution to man taking place in Africa at certain time is true. Okay, second, the finding of an ape fossil. Well, that's not exactly correct either. The image they supply in the article and the text we find later in the article actually involves a fossil finding from 2015 
that's finally been analyzed, I guess. And although not stated, the implication is that it's finally been slotted into the correct spot on the tree of evolution. The fossil is not an ape, eh, not a full ape. It's basically the eye sockets and the nose and a small portion of the upper jaw. And then there's a triangle section of the skull from the eyes going back to a point near the crown of the cranium. And that's all. Now, the next paragraph states, quote, analysis of a newly identified ape named Anodiluvius turkey recovered from the Karakular fossil locality near Kankiri with the support of the Ministry of Culture and Tourism in Turkey shows Mediterranean fossil apes are diverse and are part of the first known radiation of early homonyms, the group that includes African apes, chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas, uh, humans and their fossil ancestors. Now, mostly I read that because I thought you'd find some humor in me trying to say words, but what I wanted to point out was that this is a newly identified ape. So this is where these archaeologists or biologists or whatever ologists they are drive me crazy. Based on almost nothing, a small portion of a face, they've determined that this face is a never-before-discovered species of ape. That's why we've waited on pins and needles for eight years for the study to be completed. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't been able to sleep for years. I mean, eight years to be exact, because of the anticipation. But now we know it's it's a new ape, not a stupid, dumb, already known ape, a new ape. And if it's an ape, it's a pre-human, which means it needs to be slotted somewhere in that iconic picture of man evolving from monkey. So this study was done through an international joint effort between the University of Toronto and the Ankara University. The next paragraph is a quote from Professor David Began, or Begun, from Toronto, one of the leaders of the research, quote, Our findings further suggest that homonyms not only evolved in Western and Central Europe, but spent over five million years evolving there and spreading to the Eastern Mediterranean before eventually dispersing into Africa probably as a consequence of changing environments and diminishing forests. The members of this radiation to which Anadoluvius belongs are currently only identified in Europe and Anatolia. So uh, let me clarify what this professor, a professional smart scientist man, said. Nothing. Uh, that's it. He, he literally said nothing. Let's look at it anyway here. Their findings suggest... Well, this means that they can draw a loose correlation in the data to what they assume to be true, but they can't really say for sure. They say that homonyms spent over five million years evolving in Europe before packing up and moving. How could they possibly know this? Again, I'm sure this has to do with, I don't know, layers or fossil bones. I don't know. But, but all of that is based on unprovable, ridiculous assumptions. So his conclusion means literally nothing and can't be proven to any degree. And they probably, probably moved as a consequence of changing environments and diminishing forests. I'm assuming that this is due to climate change because of their SUVs and gas appliances and air conditioners and their refusal to migrate to electric vehicles and sustainable electricity production. But I can only be as confident of my assumption as these researchers are about theirs. And what's with the word probably anyway? I mean, yeah, again, this means he has no idea. This word indicates a made-up story begins here. But you, you know what he does know, what we all know. Any study that promotes the idea that a changing climate is bad, uh, that's going to get the funding. 
the only thing that he said that has any sort of scientific accuracy whatsoever, and that's still contingent on the premise that this ape is actually a unique species, is that it's currently only been identified in Europe and Anatolia, which is basically Turkey, and the only reason that this could be possibly correct is because he used the word currently. In other words, he has no idea where this monkey may be buried. Now, let's go on with his analysis. It gets better. Quote, The completeness of the fossil allowed us to do a broader and more detailed analysis using many characters and attributes that are coded into a program designed to calculate evolutionary relationships. The face is mostly complete after applying mirror imaging. The new part is the forehead with bone preserved to about the crown of the cranium. Previously described fossils do not have this much of the brain case. <laughs> uh, this is a complete fossil? Remember, go from one of your front teeth around your nose to both sides of your eye sockets, then to a point of a triangle to nearly the top of your head. That's all. Well, let me be accurate. It's got like four teeth on one side of the upper jaw in addition to that one front tooth. In fact, I think I've seen a few people with this exact tooth count and configuration in Walmart, but that's really neither here nor there. Look, I know that these guys purport themselves to be real good at what they do, but, but come on. To call this complete, to be excited because you have a small fragment of the skull when you apparently didn't have that before seems a bit ridiculous. But notice what they did to support their analysis. They mirrored the face. So what wasn't on the one side, they just assumed it would be the same on the other side. Not egregious and probably accurate, but yet another assumption. And then my favorite of this paragraph, they used a computer program to analyze this fossil that was, quote, designed to calculate evolutionary relationships. The program is designed to give them exactly what they want to get. This is the problem with computer models, computer programs, and most recently, artificial intelligence. A biased analysis will be just that, biased. Science is supposed to be completely unbiased, but we know that that's not true, don't we? Moving on with the quotes, this time from the other lead researcher, Professor Ayala Sevim Erol from Ankara University, quote, We have no limb bones, but judging from its jaw and teeth, the animals found alongside it, and the geological indicators of the environment, Anadiluvius probably lived in relatively open conditions, unlike the forest settings of living great apes, more like what we think the environments of early humans in Africa were like. The powerful jaws and large, thickly enameled teeth suggest a diet including hard or tough food items from terrestrial sources such as roots and rhizomes. <laughs> ay ay Okay, jaws and teeth. Well, just part of the upper jaw and four teeth. I mean, let's be accurate here. That is unless he's counting all the fossils they have of this ape, but it doesn't say nor imply that. And so they're judging by the jaws and teeth that it probably lived in an environment as he described, which is what they think early humans lived in. And that bit of jaw and few teeth suggest that it ate hard foods, apparently from the ground, which... How could they possibly know that? I mean, this entire thing is quite literally a fairy tale. They're great storytellers. I mean, lousy scientists, but great storytellers. So the article states that this ape was about the same size as a large male chimp or an average female gorilla. It lived in a dry forest setting. 
I know that there might be ways of assuming that with a high degree of confidence, so I'll give them that. And, quote, probably spent a great deal of time on the ground. Remember, this is a face and a skull fragment, and they know that it probably spent a lot of time on the ground? This is a very expressive face fragment. They go on to say that it lived with animals like, quote, giraffes, warthogs, rhinos, diverse antelopes, zebras, elephants, porcupines, hyenas, and lion-like carnivores. I mean, how is this different than today? I mean, this sounds like a modern-day chimp living in a modern-day environment. Now, their study puts this ape in the branch of the fictionary evolutionary tree that evolved chimps, bonobos, gorillas, and humans, and although African apes are only found in Africa, and as we all know, humans apparently attained their final form in Africa, well, we now know that it all came from Europe originally. <clears throat> the article concludes with stating that there are only two possible explanations as to why these chimps are seen in Europe and not Africa, especially since we know that humans evolved in Africa, apparently. The first is that these fellas did their evolving in Europe, and then they moved into Africa at some point. The second is that separate branches of apes moved from Africa into Europe independently over millions of years, and then just went extinct. Poof. Well, Professor Began, or Begun, just can't see that latter possibility being plausible. Quote, This new evidence supports the hypothesis that homonyms originated in Europe and dispersed into Africa along with many other mammals between 9 and 7 million years ago, though it does not definitively prove it. For that, we need to find more fossils from Europe and Africa between 8 and 7 million years old to establish a definitive connection between the two groups. <laughs> Ooh, well, that will likely take a lot more government grant fund money for research, right? I mean, hopefully they can find the proof they're looking for. This is nothing but a perpetual money machine based on the ability to tell stories and promote humanist ideology while attempting to prove God doesn't exist. The reality is that all they have is a few bones and a lot of theories. Not scientific theories, just theories. And these theories, as I stated, are as solid as liquid water. Everything is absolutely known until it isn't. Then the new thing is possible, and then probable, then absolute, until it isn't that anymore either. Now, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. The account of creation isn't told from a scientific view, mainly because it was primarily a miracle. That said, man and beast, in this case chimp, were created on the same day as fully complete, fully separate beings, related only by who created them and in no other way. It's possible, and I'd say very likely, that these chimps were buried during the flood of Noah's day. Why do they only find a few of these ape fossils in only a few places? There's no way to know for sure, but it's possible that chimps were smarter and more mobile, being able to avoid the floodwaters for longer. It's possible that whatever the land looked like prior to the flood, after 1,500 years, this specific species of chimp lived in a specific region of the land only. I'm not sure, but there are much more plausible scenarios when starting with the Bible. It's also very likely that the ark landed in the mountains on the border of Turkey, not on Mount Ararat, but in the mountains of Ararat, this isn't definitive, but a reasonable assumption. The land of Shinar, the Tower of Babel or Babylon, is east of Turkey in modern-day Iraq, which is north and east of Africa. We know that man dispersed from Shinar when the languages were confused. And animals, of course, would have dispersed well before that. But in general, I think it's fairly obvious that the animals would have dispersed from somewhere in that general region to other regions. 
Since the Bible doesn't give us all of the scientific, archaeologic, and migratory details of mankind or animal kind, we are forced to speculate as to how everything dispersed from coming down the ramp of the ark to all corners of the earth. In doing so, we must make judgments, we must speculate, we must assume, we must use words such as possibly and probably. But our starting point is such that we can get here from there without much speculation on the major points, only the specifics. Not only that, but using the Bible as our guide, we have, if nothing else, plausibility, if not probability. If we start with evolution, we have nothing but tales of fantasy layered one upon the other to create an unscientific narrative that really doesn't even fall into the realm of possibility. You literally have to disconnect from reason, logic, and critical thinking. You have to suspend disbelief, and you have to strap on the worldview blinders that ensure that you only see what has been approved for consumption. The study of fossils should be a study on the global flood. It should serve as a reminder of the awesome power of an all-powerful God, and it should result in a revelation of the magnificence of creation. Look at what private groups like Answers in Genesis and the Institute for Creation Research are able to do with private funding, donations, and marketing of their attractions and materials. Look at the information, the biblical analyses, the actual scientific study of creation that they're able to do because their worldview isn't mandated by an entity or narrowed to a certain accepted focus. They don't exclude evolution as a potential by dictate. They exclude it because they've done the research and evolution is just not a viable theory. In other words, AIG and ICR and others like them literally do real science. So while the world searches for truth but settles for fantasy, I choose to look to the one source of true truth, the only documentation that won't change, it won't be revised, it won't be proven wrong, and can at least give us the basis for all we know to be true, ethical, and moral. And from that foundation, I can then evaluate all other scientific or other discoveries and claims without fear that my starting point is an error, thus biasing all future results. My suggestion to you is that you do the same. The Bible will always stand true, no matter what man tries to make us believe. You're just lucky to be alive, that's all I'm saying. I wasn't really all that worried about it. I, I knew you'd be fine, but, but just look at your mother. She's a nervous wreck. I mean, eyes are all red and puffy. Mascara makes her look like she's heading to a KISS concert or an Alice Cooper lookalike contest. It's just not right. That's, that's what I'm trying to make clear. You could have at least had the consideration to let us know that you almost didn't exist. Of course, I guess it's not entirely your fault. I mean, truth be told, we were all on the edge of not existing. But still, I mean, this isn't about me. This is about you. See, found on SciTechDaily.com headline, Scientists have made a discovery that could change our understanding of the universe. Now, that may not sound like much, but the reality is, well, the scientific reality... No, that's not, that's not quite right either. What passes for so-called scientific reality is that we were apparently this close. And by the way I'm saying the word this, you know I was holding my thumb and pointer finger very close together, just this close to not existing. We are unbelievably lucky, or evolution is just that good at making conscious decisions, or something like that, I don't know, uh, but that's why we're here. Uh, let me, um, 
Not so much explain, let me serve as your guide once again through more evolutionary gobbledygook. We apparently have researchers from Queen Mary University of London, (laughs) God save the Queen, man, Uh, to thank for this new, very convenient revelation, as it appears to me. Now, if you've already read their published paper in your copy of the journal Science Advances, you can probably just stop right here. Assuming you haven't reached that page yet, join me, if you will, on this scientifical feast. The bottom line. You know how science, or more accurately, scientists, for essentially centuries have or has, depending on if the word goes as science or scientist, I'm not a grammarian, but there have been virtually complete agreement in the scientific community on certain universal constants, right? I mean, the force of gravity, the law of attraction, the speed of light or the speed of sound, etc., etc. That's just a few of the many constants. Well, these researchers have revealed, quote, for the first time that there is a range in which fundamental constants can vary. Now, I don't know what they consider to be universal constants. I don't really care, but we've proven for some time now that constants like the speed of light can be massively affected by, for example, temperature, bringing light to a stop or very close to a stop as the temperature of the air it's passing through approaches absolute zero. So I'd say that any clear-thinking, semi-scientific-minded person wouldn't be shocked if some of these universal constants could vary based on various environmental conditions. But this specific finding is very, very important because these potential variations in these constants are now, quote, allowing for the viscosity needed for life processes to occur within and between living cells. Okay, it's becoming a little bit clearer, I think. The first paragraph wraps up with this, quote, This is an important piece of the puzzle in determining where these constants came from and how they impact life as we know it. So to frame this up, if I understand what the premise is, finding that universal constants aren't constant helps us understand why we have and where we got universal constants. Now, I read that paragraph a few times, and I'm pretty sure that that is what it says. The existence of universal constants is vital to scientific study. It's vital for scientific advances and literally vital for the very existence of life. The problem is that so-called science doesn't know where these constants came from and why they appear to be constant. The specific study in question has to do with the viscosity of fluids. Now, you'll likely know what viscosity is through uh, things like uh, automotive motor oil, right? When you fill the car with 10W30, the 10 and the 30 both refer to the viscosity of the oil. When you use the saying, you're slow as molasses, that's a reference to the high viscosity or resistance to flow of molasses, Viscosity is simply a fluid's ability to flow. The thicker the liquid is, the less able to flow. Therefore, the more viscous it is, the higher viscosity it has. So motor oil is more viscous than water. Molasses is more viscous than motor oil. Well, previously, the same research team discovered that a given liquid has a floor as to how runny it can be. The author of the study, Professor of Physics, Kostya Trachenko stated that cells have water within and around them. The liquid is what allows motion inside the cells and allows the cells to move relative to other cells. The viscosity of that liquid dictates how the cells move both inside and out. 
So think of a couple gears spinning inside of a bath of oil. If the viscosity is very low, the gears will spin very freely. If the viscosity is very high, the gears will have a much harder time spinning. And there are pros and cons to both scenarios. With a very low viscosity, the gears may spin more freely, but they'll also experience greater wear since they don't have as much protection. The high viscosity oil will protect the gears from wear much better, but they'll take a lot more power to spin them and they'll generate a lot more heat trying to turn in the thick liquid. You could think of it like the difference between swimming through water and swimming through peanut butter. Back to our cells. This water viscosity is critically important as the way that our cells move internally and externally is critical to life. As the professor says, quote, if fundamental constants change, viscosity would change too, impacting life as we know it. For example, if water was as viscous as tar, life would not exist in its current form or not exist at all. This applies beyond water, so all life forms using the liquid state to function would be affected. And these constants seem to work together, and changes in these universal constants have a ripple effect. The professor goes on, quote, any change in fundamental constants, including an increase or decrease, would be equally bad news for flow and for liquid-based life. We expect the window to be quite narrow. For example, viscosity of our blood would become too thick or too thin for body functioning with only a few percent change of some fundamental constants, such as the Planck constant or electron charge. As he said, the window for life to exist is very narrow. If any of these constants didn't stay constant, life would be dramatically different, or wouldn't exist at all. And you didn't even think about calling your mother and telling her how close you were to not existing, did you? <sighs> the article then closes with a couple very interesting concluding thoughts. Quote, Surprisingly, the fundamental constants were thought to be tuned billions of years ago to produce heavy nuclei in stars. And back then, life as we know it today didn't exist. There was no need for these constants to be fine-tuned at that point to also enable cellular life billions of years later. And yet these constants turn out to be bio-friendly, to flow in and between living cells. Okay, hold on to that for a second. Then the article concludes with this, quote, an accompanying conjecture is that multiple tunings may have been involved, and this then suggests a similarity to biological evolution, where traits were acquired independently. Through evolutionary mechanisms, fundamental constants may be the result of nature arriving at sustainable physical structures. It remains to be seen how the principles of evolution can be helpful to understand the origin of fundamental constants. Okay. So did you catch all that? Basically, they've made this logical leap. Knowing that life exists and knowing that evolution is a fact and knowing that universal constants exist and knowing that life requires universal constants, we therefore know that evolution created universal constants and universal constants created life or something like that. And this is where we see one of the major inconsistencies with the modern-day evolutionary theory. Evolution by design, by definition, is supposed to be a series of chance, beneficial mutations, and chemical processes, all adding up to create something new. It's an undirected process, as there is no conscious entity that can direct the process. But as this author stated, these universal constants are thought to have fine-tuned themselves billions of years ago for stars 
but those shockingly work perfectly for life as well, even though there was no life back then and no need for life-giving constants. That's implying that evolution is a system where changes happen based on need, a conscious process, not random, as the definition states. And you'll find that evolutionists will seamlessly flip between these two evolutionary mechanisms. It's chicken or the egg. Did functional need dictate evolution? Or did evolution create function? If you ask an evolutionist, they'll tell you the latter. But if you listen to the words of the evolutionist, they'll clearly state that both positions are true, depending on what they needed to be. Now, knowing this, one could argue that life developed the way it did because the universal constants dictated how it would do that. Constants developed billions of years ago for star creation. But as the concluding paragraph states, they have no idea. Maybe there were gradual changes over time that got us to a point of sustainable life. But again, these things were apparently fine-tuned billions of years ago for stars, but these exact same constants work perfectly for the nucleus of stars and for the creation and sustainability of life and for the planet to work, and the sun, and the oceans, vegetation, literally everything relies on constants being essentially constant, at least within a very small window of variation. But as any good scientist does, this is sarcasm if you didn't recognize that, you stay firmly planted inside your box with your safe government and peer-approved theory, and look to your theory to prove itself. Quote, it remains to be seen how the principles of evolution can be helpful to understand the origin of fundamental constants. So, there are universal constants that dictate how well blood flows, how well cells move around each other, how well cell innards move around inside the cell, while also applying precisely to produce the heavy nuclei in stars, and the only conclusion that can be drawn is that uh, evolution did it evolutionists, atheists, and the like, claim, and they claim this rightly in some cases, that the Christian claiming a young earth uh, creation uh, created by God, the creator, uses the get-out-of-jail-free card of God did it, otherwise known as the God of the gaps. If we're not sure how it happened, just say God did it and shut down the discussion. Well, evolutionists do the same thing, but their God is evolution. How did that happen? Oh, evolution did it. The difference is that the young earth creation theory has a creator that can do things. Evolutionists have a nothing that can allegedly do anything and everything, and not just any things, but perfect things that work perfectly for all needs at all times. Well, I for one am happy, and frankly so is your mother, that an impersonal force of nothing did everything, and did it perfectly, so that you exist. I mean, that was close. Now, all this said, you're probably thinking that we're out of the woods, but no, you'd be wrong. In fact, even though evolution did everything just right, just threaded that needle of life by perfectly evolving those constants so everything could exist, mankind still almost came crashing down before it really even got started, in fact, which again means that you were so very close to simply not existing. And as before, not a phone call, not a text, a carrier pigeon, smoke signals, nothing. Just let us sit here and worry, I guess. That's oh, fine. It's fine. We're fine. I'm fine. Everything is fine. Found on Smithsonian Magazine via MSN.com. Headline, Genetics suggest our human ancestors very nearly went extinct 900,000 years ago. 
So as we all know, our evolutionary line broke away from gorillas about 10 million years ago. And further, as we all know, hominins, that's humanity's ancestral line, split from chimps and bonobos about 7 million years ago. And then things just got silly from there. I mean, we evolved into... Oh boy, here we go. Okay, Sahelanthropus chicaninensis, then Ardipithecus ramidus, obviously Australopithecus afarensis came next, then Australopithecus africanus, and then Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, Homo neanderthensis, Homo sapiens, and finally our most evolved form, Homo sapiens sapien. I think I said all those pretty perfectly. Now, curiously, in the 10 million years since we split from gorillas, gorillas use those 10 million years evolving into gorillas. But chimps and bonobos, and this is wild, in 7 million years, they started as chimpanzees and bonobos, and somehow they ended at uh, chimpanzees and, and bonobos. Um, wouldn't that make gorillas, chimps, and bonobos genetically perfect? since they apparently don't have any beneficial genetic mutations that cause them to evolve anymore? Ah, let's not think about that one. Anyway, about 900,000 years ago, we just crazy Homo erectuses or Homo erecti, which is we all now look like a cross between a black man and a gorilla because evolution is based on the theory that the black man is less evolved than the white man because its basis is rooted deeply in racist beliefs. <laughs> Again, let's not think about that. So about 900,000 years ago, when we were just Homo erectionists, ah, that one can't be right, we as a species, well, we nearly bit it. Uh, this article begins with a description of the Doomsday Clock. If you don't know what the Doomsday Clock is, simply stated it's a monument to human pride and idiocy. This started as an artist's rendering of a clock with the hand set at seven minutes before midnight for the cover of The Bulletin, a magazine created by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, or something like that. Honestly, it doesn't really matter that much. This was created to show how close we are or were to global annihilation due to atomic or nuclear war. Well, since 1947, the clock has been updated 26 times with 30 statements as to why it's set at what it is at the time of the statement. The clock doesn't always move closer to midnight, meaning poof, we're done, sometimes it actually moves away from midnight when something good happens. So the Cuban Missile Crisis would have moved us closer. When that was resolved, it moved away. The nuclear arms race would have moved us closer. Nuclear arms treaties agreeing to destroy a certain percentage of warheads would move us farther away. Well, somewhere, and I don't care enough to figure out where, the clock stopped being about nuclear destruction, and it shifted to climate destruction because, as we all know, that's really the most catastrophic thing ever in the history of the universe. Well, that is until January 2023, when it was moved from 100 seconds before midnight to only 90 seconds before midnight because of the war in Ukraine for some reason. Although, to be honest, this war is clearly being used by our idiocracy to cover up the Biden crime syndicate and our Marxist leadership. Um, they'll stop at nothing to protect Ukraine, even if that means uh, they get uh, their ultimate desire and start a hot World War III. So, I don't know, maybe 90 seconds before midnight isn't close enough. Maybe, maybe we're closer. Anyway, this article starts by speaking of the doomsday clock and how close we are to global extinction, 
but as close as we are today to wiping ourselves out, little do most of us know that a mere 900,000 years ago, the population of our evolutionary ancestors dropped down to only exactly 1,280 breeding individuals. Now, a study led by Wang Ji Hu of the Chinese Academy of Sciences analyzed the genetic lineages of 3,154 modern humans to trace their genetic characteristics backward in time. They used their genes to create a model of, quote, population patterns likeliest to have produced their existing genomes. They found that between 813,000 and 930,000 years ago, precisely, we experienced a, quote, genetic bottleneck. The article goes on to say, quote, for unknown reasons, perhaps difficult environmental conditions. <laughs> uh, tell me you're shocked at that. Are you shocked that the best guess they have is environmental conditions? Quote, their numbers plunged dramatically to a point where our lineage was within a whisper of total extinction. Based on the study's estimates, some 98.7% of our human ancestors were wiped out. A paleoanthropologist from the Natural History Museum in London, who wasn't part of the study, but they felt like they needed to ask him about it anyway, said, quote, the bottleneck lasted for a remarkably long time if accurately modeled. <laughs> ah, you know how I feel about models. And saying, quote, if accurately modeled, yeah, I mean, no kidding. He goes on to say that this bottleneck could have led to inbreeding and a loss of genetic diversity, yada, yada, yada. Another geneticist, this one from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who um, also had nothing to do with this study, said that fossil and genetic data from that time period is very scarce, so it would be interesting to see if their results could be replicated using other methods. Now, I'm not sure what methods, just, uh, just other methods. Now, to arrive at this conclusion, the Chinese geneticists developed a new tool called FitCol. Geneticists can gather genomic sequence data from humans, feed the information into this tool, and, quote, FitCol computations traced the population's many genetic mutations and their probabilities of occurring backward in time to arrive at estimates of population sizes that existed at various moments in evolutionary history. So it estimates the probabilities to estimate the population sizes at various points in evolutionary history. And remember, being a computer program, this is nothing but a model built by humans that have determined that evolution is true. So all assumptions made to calculate these estimations are skewed by the biases of the scientists who did the programming. Now, the UW-Madison geneticist isn't as impressed. Uh, he doesn't think that we were that close to extinction. He's not disputing the conclusion reached of only having 1,280 breeding individuals. He's saying that there were probably a lot of other individuals, too. Well, okay, I mean, let's say we have a population made up of mostly chemically and physically mutilated individuals that are no longer able to have children, and only a few humans left that believe themselves to be born in the correct body and assigned the correct gender at birth. Well, in a single generation, those non-breeding mutilated people will be gone, and only those that can have children are left holding the bag for propagation of the species, right? So I'm not really seeing his argument. Whatever. Not really the point here. The article goes on, quote, What might have caused the population plunge? 
The answers aren't found in the genetic data, but scientists do know that era saw a dramatic shift in the Earth's environments. The Middle Pleistocene transition was a time of significant climate change, including a sharp cooling across the globe about 900,000 years ago that saw growing glaciers, chillier seas, extended droughts, and stronger monsoons. Wildlife species of Africa and Eurasia underwent significant changes during this period. And the article continues on with more commentary from other science-talking guys that, again, aren't connected to the study, giving their theories based on their specific fields of study, etc., etc., blah, 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 doesn't matter. Okay, so look, these articles are written by serious individuals about serious scientific studies conducted by teams of legitimately smart people published by notable scientific journals, and not one bit of it can count as legitimate science by definition. Whenever you automatically carve out and eliminate an entire possible plausible hypothesis based on nothing but unfounded religious bigotry, you've stepped out of the realm of science and firmly planted your feet on the grounds of your own preferred religious belief. Both of these articles could be easily overlaid on top of biblical accounts. In the first article, we find that we have universal constants, of which nobody knows how they really came about. Nobody understands how they could have evolved to what they are today, and there's no apparent reason why they stopped evolving at the precise moment that made them work perfectly for creating the nucleus of forming stars, as well as the proper functioning of the cells and blood of all living organisms. In the Chris Farley-David Spade movie, Tommy Boy, Spade's character goes into a gas station, map in hand, to ask the attendant where Davenport is, as he can't find it on his map. The man behind the counter tells him how far away it is, then dismissively tells him to get a new map. After a few seconds of banter, Spade's snarky, sarcastic nature tells him that it must be on the map because he says it's only 22 miles away and he's really smart, so... At which point the attendant looks up from his book, points at the map, and says it's a map of Illinois, which they're in, on the border of Iowa, which is where Davenport is, 22 miles away. He states, quote, you're in the wrong state. Get yourself a new map. This is kind of where we are with so-called historical, evolutionary, or origin science. If the data doesn't seem to fit the accepted narrative, get yourself a new map. And in this case, get yourself an old, time-tested, well-worn, unchanging map. So why do we have universal constants? Well, because we have someone who created the universe with these constants so that all things could exist together. Why do they stay constant? Well, because Jesus upholds his creation and keeps them constant. Why does water have the perfect viscosity for cellular function? Because that's how it was designed. Evolution, by definition, cannot and does not have constants. If you draw your boundaries small enough, things can appear constant. But evolution is a process of very small changes, all compiling over a long period of time to make slow, small, gradual changes in whatever. If these constants had been around for 10 billion years or 12 billion or 14 billion years, and so many evolutionary changes have happened in that time, down to many, many atomic changes, how did these constants stay constant? And if they can only range a tiny bit before everything breaks down and ceases to exist, well, that puts even more pressure on a steady-state scenario in a constantly evolving universe. This seems improbable at best. Get yourself a new map. Moving to the second article, 
even with extreme biases built into this computer program or evolutionary genetic model, it still spits out results that are easily overlaid on top of the Bible. Now, a few adjustments need to be made to the near extinction theory, but that's not really a problem. Rather than 900,000 years ago, maybe we'll look at about uh, 4,500 years ago. Now, I know that's a massive difference, but again, the long ages in evolution are all based on assumptions, massively unprovable assumptions, in fact. There are some of us that would call this uh, guesswork, but we have a document that, with a little work, can tell us that this event did in fact occur about 4,500 years ago. Uh, this was due to environmental conditions, that's what the article says. Well, the environment was full to the top with water. In fact, that's not a conducive environment for land-dwelling, air-breathing creatures. The article says the population lost a bit more than 98.7% of our ancestors. Now, I don't know the exact percentage, but let's say with a tiny bit of rounding, it was essentially 100% of the human population that was wiped out through an extreme bottleneck. The article says that at the same time, the planet did see glaciers, likely chillier seas, extended droughts, and stronger monsoons. And uh, I would agree <laughs> with the article that, yes, it, it probably did. In fact, the sharp cooling would have been a result of this extreme environmental condition. I also agree that the bottleneck would have led to increased inbreeding and a loss of genetic diversity. When you get down to six individuals three breeding pairs, the males of which were all of the same genetic lineage, the women having some diversity in their genome, and that's it, the resulting children would have a much more limited genome, and inbreeding with brothers, sisters, cousins, I guess possibly aunts or uncles, this would have had to have happened, or again, the population would have gone extinct. See, the findings evolutionary scientists come up with the basic concepts they develop, they're all correct, really. The problem is that they have their conclusions all wrong because they've got the wrong map, or at least they're not consulting a full map, only the part they know and like, because the other part of the map, the rest of the map, it has other stuff they definitely don't like, like an omnipotent creator that owns his creation and sets the rules. Now, one could claim that I've got the same problem, that I'm biased on the side of the Bible. And I'll grant you that. My starting point for any of this is the Bible, as I believe the Bible to be correct and accurate. The difference between me and them, or really more accurately, the difference between young earth, Bible-believing scientists, and evolutionary scientists, is that young earth creation science isn't afraid of testing and evaluating evolutionary theories. Give me your best evidence. Give me your theories. Let me analyze what you've got. The problem is that evidence for evolution is... um. I mean, it's foolish. It's easily proven foolish when evaluated honestly. And that's why creation scientists aren't afraid to evaluate it honestly alongside their own or other theories. The same can't be said for evolutionary scientists. They refuse to evaluate a biblical hypothesis to explain their data or findings. I think most of them are just locked into this idea that Christianity is a religion, evolution is a science. They are mutually exclusive, never the twain shall meet. I mean, that's laughably wrong on its face, if actually given some honest thought. Others, I think, fully realize that a biblical model could explain their data and findings, and in many, if not most cases, would give a much better explanation than their own theories, but they simply can't allow that for a variety of reasons. Now, what I simply can't understand are those claiming to be Christians and historical scientists who willingly choose to ignore large parts of the religion they claim to believe, claiming to believe in an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign God, 
yet putting their faith in man's audacious claim of a greater knowledge, which must by necessity contradict the Bible, claiming the shed blood of Christ, his death and resurrection, for the forgiveness of sin, for the conquering of death and the grave, yet again by necessity claiming that death existed millions or billions of years before sin, claiming that a perfectly holy, righteous, just God with perfect ability to determine what is good, as he is the only one that is good, was either mistaken when declaring all creation good after day six, or in their worldview, after declaring two evolved beings to be human and breathing his breath of life into them, a metaphorical day six, if you will, or that he was declaring death, disease, bloodshed, and mutation good when making that statement. And I could probably spend millions of years listing their willing contradictions. As I think every theologian, every young earth creationist, every Christian will affirm, the Bible is not a science textbook. But being many books bound into one cohesive tome, a large portion of that book is history. Contained inside that historical account is the foundation for science and scientific inquiry. How old is creation? Well, let's consult the Holy Spirit-inspired and protected Word of God for the chronology of the creation. And if it speaks on that, let's then evaluate our discoveries and analyses in the light of that foundation. Well, how did everything come about? Let's consult that same word of the very only God and see if it says anything about origins. If it does, let's evaluate our evidence based on what it says. Now, we lose a lot of context of what the Bible says due to the translation into English. It's not translated wrong. It's just that the Hebrew or Greek words and phrases have meanings and connotations not easily translated into English. However, today, there are nearly an infinite number of tools for a regular schmuck like me to use to attempt to determine what the Bible is saying if and when I have questions. Now, all that said, the Bible is very clear about what it is. It is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So says 2 Timothy. It's inspired, although being written by man, it was man writing God's words as the Holy Spirit led them. So says 2 Peter. And being God's words, we know that his word is truth. So says John. So let me encourage you to view all of history, all of science, all current events, all politics, the seemingly good in the world, the obvious bad, the pain, the joy, even what you're being told by your pastor or a teacher or a podcaster. View it all through a biblical lens. Some connections will be more obvious than others, but as every Christian should know, absolutely everything has its grounding at the base level in biblical truths. Hold on to that reality, no matter how the world tries to convince you otherwise. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Well, the rickety old coal-fire steam-powered choo-choo train seems to be lumbering slowly and precariously on the somewhat mangled yet questionably passable track. Again, mostly. Here we are at goal update number 31. Let's shovel some more coal into the firebox, stoke the flame, and get this thing moving. As always, let's start with weight change. Right, I mean, it's, it's not the next ice age. It's not global warming. It's 
climate change, right? That way, no matter what happens, it's exactly what we expected to happen and it's all bad. For me, let's not focus in on only weight loss. Let's talk weight change. And that way, no matter what happens, it's exactly as intended and everyone is happy. Optionally, fat and dumb as well. As for last week's weigh-in, I appear to be down 2.4 pounds to 194.6. Now, for perspective, if you follow my weight loss plan, that's where I was in mid-March. So basically, I've lost uh, about six months in there somewhere. <laughs> uh, delicious six months that were lost, actually. Well, a few of those months were delicious, at least, not all of them. Uh, we'll have to wait and see if that's a sustainable loss or not. It could be, but there's an equal chance that it won't be. Regardless, with my goal modification, I'm now looking at a required average weekly weight loss of 1.4 pounds in order to hit 175 by the end of the year. And that's a very doable number, you know, if I, if I don't blow it again. So for now, that goal is back to a solid green. Uh, incidentally, as I'm a person that despises dieting almost as much as I do working out, I have a few things that I enjoy doing, but I need to kind of swap them up. I get bored, and I was getting really tired of slap fighting the heavy bag around the middle of the year. One thing I've missed is weightlifting. Now, I've never been a huge guy, but since I informally got into weightlifting in college with a couple friends, I've enjoyed it. Uh, of course, until obviously I don't enjoy it, then I don't do it anymore. Well, anyway, used to have a great Olympic bar and a multifunction rack and a number of accessories, but I decided to sell all that a while back because I didn't think it would be a good idea to risk pulling my lower back, which is apparently the same strength as that of a tiny baby's. But to replace it, I got a good set of exercise bands. So I'm basically hitting the elliptical trainer for about 25 minutes or so, then doing a series of weightlifting type exercises with the resistance bands. Admittedly, the elliptical burns probably one and a half to two times the number of calories per amount of time as compared to the bands. But I want to work on the upper body as well. And for right now, I'm enjoying it. The only downside, and this has been this way for the majority of the year, the right shoulder. I'm waiting basically for me to blow out the rotator cuff or something. I don't know. It's, it's not right over there, and the wrong move creates a fair amount of shooting pain and a reminder not to do whatever I just did in that way again. We'll kind of have to see how this goes as time goes on. Moving on, pages read. I managed to get 70 pages read, which was my original weekly goal. I got that over the last week. Now, a little spoiler alert to next week's goal update. Uh, pages read, that's probably not going to be a thing. <laughs> uh, the week has been uh, very full of a number of extracurricular activities and reading just was not a priority. But for this week, I slid past the 5,000 pages read mark, now sitting at 5,061 for the year. Only 320 pages to go to surpass 2019's level. And that's about the number of pages left in this current book. So that goal is a solid green. I think we'll be okay there. Devotions are generally sitting in the six to seven days per week, which is above the goal I had set. Still working through Exodus. That's a solid green as well. We won't go into that anymore. Finally, days reading the Bible. This shouldn't be as difficult as it is. Sadly, I'm able to close my door at work and take about 30 minutes at lunch to focus on reading and studying more easily than I'm able to do that at home. That said, I'm working at rearranging some things to try to limit the time wasters that have slowly crept back into my life. You know, those little mindless things like playing games and watching TV. Boy, I mean, they can just suck the minutes and, and then the hours out of your day. And before you know it, poof, day is gone and nothing was accomplished. 
I know it's not just me, and I know I'm not saying anything overly profound, just saying. So with those excuses out there, I did do my Bible reading uh, four days last week with a goal of five, which keeps me sitting at 80% of my goal, which is where my overall new Bible reading goal percentage is currently sitting, 80%. Now, if you recall, I'm approaching this from two different angles. Uh, One is mostly just reading, right? Taking notes as I go, but this is more of a standard Bible in a year, doing it chronologically type of thing, although slower than a year because of how I'm doing this, right? I'm I'm actually splitting time with what I'm trying to do in in in-depth type study, which is working very slowly, reading every note, reading every cross-reference, and taking more detailed notes. As of this update, I'm through the first handful of chapters in Genesis through Job, back into Genesis up to midway through chapter 24 for the chronological Bible-in-a-year type reading plan. As for the in-depth study, moving very slowly as of this update, I'm sitting at Genesis 3.8. It is slow. Now, as I've been doing the last few updates, let me give you a few things that kind of stood out to me or that I haven't seen before. Now, these may be things you shake your head at wondering how I've never thought of this before, or these may be profound. Hopefully, at least some of these are useful in stirring your curiosity. I've only got a few points to cover in this update, so let's go ahead and get these out of the way here. In Genesis 17, it just struck me how crazy it would be for Abraham to doubt God, to laugh at the idea that he was going to have a son with Sarah. I know he was old, but he'd been promised a chosen son. God had made a covenant with Abraham that he would be the father of nations, of kings, of God's chosen people. God made that covenant of his own doing. Abraham had already been told that Ishmael was not the promised son, there was another, and yet Abraham laughed at this idea of a son with Sarah. So how often do we hear unbelievers say that if God would only just come down and make himself known, then they'd believe? How often do we ask for a sign or doubt God's promises with that same kind of thought process, even if we don't admit it? You know, if God will just show himself, if he'll just speak to me, well, how many books have been written and how many people have been bilked out of money because someone that claims to be a Christian claims to have been given a special revelation by God? Abraham spoke with God or with a Christophany or had angelic messengers deliver messengers from God on a fairly regular basis, right, as compared to us, which is none. He had a strong faith in God and clearly knew that God was the all-powerful creator God, and yet he laughed. Now, I could say that this gives us an excuse. After all, we're not Abraham by far, so we we can doubt God and laugh, but, but no, What this should do is bolster our faith that God is a promise-keeping God. If he promises it, he'll do it. We can see what Jesus said about those that believe without seeing, right? We are blessed with a supernatural kind of faith. We can take comfort in knowing that God is a faithful God, an omnipotent God, a sovereign God, and an all-loving, promise-keeping God. Next point, definitely not as profound or as inspiring as, as the... Uh, previous point, but in the account of the destruction of Sodom, it appears that Lot's son-in-law, son's sons-in-law, the two men betrothed to his daughters, were part of the homosexually sex-crazed crowd of men trying to get Lot to send out the two strangers, the strangers that we know, of course, are angels. 
I've just never made that connection before. Maybe you have. I Probably you have. I don't know. But in verse 9, Lot is trying to disperse the crowd, even offering his two virgin daughters, which just blows most of our minds. As the crowd pressed in on Lot, threatening to break the door down, the angels reach out and grab Lot and struck the crowd with blindness. Verse 11 says, quote, They wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then verse 12, the angels asked Lot who else he had in the city, and they named his son-in-law, sons, and daughters, and told him to go warn them to leave the city. Now, I find it interesting that they only mention one son-in-law, but Lot references sons-in-law. No matter. Verse 14 says that Lot went out to speak to them, meaning they were not in the house at that point. And this is still the same night as they were all struck blind and wearied themselves searching for the door. And Lot told them to, quote, get up, get out of this place, meaning that they were sleeping. But they didn't take him seriously. Then at the breaking of dawn, the angels got Lot and his family out of the city. So does this mean that they were out there with the crowd? Well, not conclusively, but it sure sounds like it to me, especially since the crowd was described in verse 4 as being the men of the city from young to old, all the people from every quarter. The entire story of Lot, really, when you come right down to it, is just kind of a mess. Next point, moving to Abraham and the second time he lied about Sarah being his sister, not his wife. Keep in mind, this was a sin of omission because although Sarah was his half-sister, She was also his wife, and he chose not to disclose that because he felt that that was the only way he could save his own skin. So the second time he lied was to Abimelech, the king, and as we know, the king took Sarah to be his wife. Abimelech was protected by God from touching her, and we, or at least I, tend to think that this was, you know, for a night or two before God came to him and said he was going to wipe them all out because she was a married woman. But after he returned Sarah to Abraham, we find out in verses 17 and 18 that after Abraham prayed for Abimelech, God healed his wife and his maidservants so they could bear children again because apparently Yahweh had shut all the wombs of Abimelech's household because of this. Well, this had to be a number of, what, months at a minimum for them to realize that uh, ain't nobody able to get pregnant no more, right? This was not just a night or two, otherwise... I mean, who cares if their wombs were shut for a few days? But the bigger point that struck me was that when Abimelech, not God's chosen, confronted Abraham, he said, quote, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. See, the laws of God are written on the heart of every man. Abraham was the man that was supposed to be walking with God. But a pagan, someone that I'm guessing, likely worshipped many gods, confronted Abraham about his morality, his godliness. Abraham, for all intents and purposes, had sinned against Abimelech. Reading this, my thoughts go to my public witness. We all struggle with sin. Every Christian should be able to admit that fact. But how we carry ourselves in the lost world, well, it makes a difference. No matter the internal struggles we're dealing with, we should always be careful to project ourselves as Christians in the general world. Not saying we must be perfect, as that's not realistic, but that we should not be out doing things that should not be done, either on our own, or with others, or to others. All right, one more. Let me give you my theory on the serpent in the garden that tempted Eve. I know growing up I always thought this was Satan manifesting himself as a serpent. You have another school of thought that this was Satan that had indwelt a serpent. 
But I can't logically make either of those work. The Bible says that, quote, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. So the way that I read that, this is speaking of the animal, the actual reptile serpent, not Satan. Then the serpent spoke to Eve, and since she didn't freak out, this appears to be something that was normal. Either the serpent could talk, or animals could talk, or at least they could be understood clearly by Adam and Eve. I don't know what, but but she didn't freak out, so this tells me that this was not unusual. Okay. Then after all was done, and God cursed the serpent, the snake, by making it crawl on its belly and eat the dust, if this was Satan manifesting as a snake, or if this was Satan controlling a snake against its will— why would God punish snakes over something it had nothing to do with? I think the snake was a willing participant, working with and speaking on behalf of Satan to deceive Eve. Did Satan make a promise to the snake for something? I, I don't know, maybe, but I have to believe that the snake was a snake, and it made a choice to participate in this scheme, and therefore, by one snake crawling on its belly was passed to all snakes. The federal snakehead, if you will. And finally, in Eve's mind, when she responded to the snake, she said that they couldn't eat or touch the fruit of the tree. Of course, that was wrong. When her eyes were open and she was deceived that the fruit was good and then took hold of it and didn't just die right there on the spot, in her mind, the death threat must not have been real. I mean, can you imagine her hand shaking as she reached up to grab hold of this fruit? Now, Either Adam told her she couldn't touch it, as an added layer of protection against the temptation to eat it, or she just got it wrong. But either way, Adam was right there. Why didn't he stop her? Was he not wanting to reveal that he might have told her to be more careful than she really had to be? Was he curious to see what would happen? Eh, no idea. But this, to me, illustrates how important it is for us to know and understand the scriptures with a great deal of precision. Just kind of knowing sort of what the Bible basically says about general topics is only good enough for us to be deceived, easily deceived. And this is clearly seen in many, many denominations and churches today. A congregation of deceived goats, Bibles closed, simply following the leader with dire eternal consequences. Anyway, that's all I've got for you today. Hopefully you'll find some of these thoughts to be interesting, and hopefully it makes you want to dig deeper into the scriptures as well. And that's all I've got for the goal update today. So with that, away I go. Okay, bye.